0: Welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things related to child development with the research and a policy bent. I'm Caitlin.
1: And I'm Haley.
0: We are a researcher and a policy analyst translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in
1: tech and business. Each month, we usually start with covering the latest in research, news, or policy, and then bumping to a guest portion where you get to hear more from an expert. But this month, we're going to flip the script a little and dig into our expert chat first because it relates so much to the rest of our conversation and because Caitlin has some amazing new work to share, and you're not going to want to miss it. So Caitlin, you want to bring in our friend?
0: Absolutely. Molly is the Associate Director of the Active Playful Learning Project, a national study aimed at helping students become deeper and more creative thinkers. She also serves as a research scientist at the Temple Infant and Child Lab where we work together. And Molly received her postdoctoral training as the Goldberg Postdoc Research Fellow in the NEED Lab at Teachers College Columbia University. She served as the master site coordinator for the Baby's First Years Project, the first randomized controlled trial examining the impact of poverty reduction on family well-being and children's developmental outcomes. Molly earned her PhD at Temple as well, where she studied vocabulary learning in preschoolers and her undergrad at Barnard. She is particularly passionate about translating developmental science for parents teachers, policymakers, and other stakeholders. Molly, I'm so glad we finally made this happen. I wanted to have you on for so long, so thank you for being here.
2: Caitlin and Haley, it is so exciting for me to be here. I've listened to your podcast since your first episode. You're probably your number one fan, so you can imagine (laughs) for me it's an honor to be here. Well we're super
0: happy to have you on um, so excitingly um, Molly I know you were just in Chicago hosting a workshop can you tell us more about active playful learning the work you do and what you were doing in Chicago
2: Sure absolutely active playful learning uh, or APL as I'll probably call it is a study funded by the Lego Foundation but I think we should go back and talk about playful learning landscapes which is an initiative to bring playful learning into the lives of all children so, If you, you know, visit our website, you can see that. We help facilitate the building of playful learning installations at places like bus stops, laundromats, supermarkets, and this is to bring play into children's lives. We know that through years of developmental science, children learn through play. They learn socio-emotional skills. They learn academic skills like literacy and math through play. So we want to imbue that in, in the lives of all children, but especially those that come from, you know, lower income backgrounds who might not have the opportunity to attend schools that perhaps, you know, have the means to implement that. So, active playful learning is kind of based on this three part equation. And this, you know, goes back to the work of Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Dr. Roberta Golinkoff, who Caitlin and Haley and I are, are colleagues with and are very lucky to work with. And they, again, see the importance of the science of playful learning and want to bring it to all areas of children's lives. And so, this particular project, though, brings it into the classroom. And we focus on this three part equation. The first part is community and design with parents and community members it also talks about the science of how children learn and the what or what we want children to to know to learn in school so that they can be happy adults and successful adults and so you know i'm happy to talk about the pillars of playful learning and those what we call those six c's those important life skills but also while we go into you know communities and help build in playful learning installations when we go and help teachers implement these pillars of playful learning. We always do it with the third part of the equation that I mentioned first, which is with the community. So we want to talk to parents. We want to talk to members of the community to say, what are important outcomes of children to you, right? We don't want to come in as scientists and just say, okay, the science says that your kids need to be good collaborators. They need to be creative thinkers. They need to have confidence, et cetera, et cetera. Of course that's true. But the community knows often what's best for their children, right? And so what they want and what they value is an integral part of this design process.
0: Yeah, we definitely talked about playful learning landscapes before. And I think you put it so beautifully, Molly, that each project is so uniquely different because we have different community members that are at the heart of it. So it's, you know, it's like we call it a formula because it has these three parts. But each, you know, experience with communities is a co-creation process, which creates all these different experiences for kids in
2: the end. Absolutely. You know, I think, Caitlin, like you said, you've talked about the playful installations piece of active playful learning. This particular study that the Lego Foundation has generously funded is a model where We're going to work with coaches in four different states in Texas, California, Illinois, and Virginia. And we, those sites are, um, we have universities in those states who have partnered with us. And they've hired coaches. So these are individuals who are previous classroom teachers, previous elementary school coaches, and they are very interested in playful learning and i think they saw value in you know joining a project that wants to bring this into school systems everywhere and so we recently did have a training in chicago we were able to start with them really early we showed them this three-part equation but we what we did was we say we practiced what we preach so we didn't want to have a three-day training where uh, people sat in chairs and just watched PowerPoints all day. Instead, we, they needed to get up out of their chair. They needed to communicate. Very right on brand. I love that for act- an active safe learning <laughs> conference. Right, right on, on brand. Yes, they had to collaborate. They had to communicate. But most importantly, they had to have fun. We made all of the activities that we did joyful. And so these activities were meant to show teachers and coaches examples of what they could do in the classroom, you know, like practical examples, but also just demonstrate analogies of, look how fun this was. This is something you could bring into your classroom. This is something, yeah, we practice fractions doing this, right? But you can imagine how we can practice whole numbers with this. And so we really wanted to uh, show them and not tell them what active playful learning was. And so that was with the coaches that we have in the Chicago area and next week we'll be going to actually meet our teachers who will be helping us pilot. So this upcoming year, it's it's we're very very excited. So this upcoming year 2023 to 2024 is our pilot year. And so again, we're kind of onboarding our coaches, onboarding our teachers. But again, we're learning from the school districts. We're learning from the teachers. And so we've co-created coaching and teaching documents with the former teachers and coaches on our team who we've hired. But you never know how a study is going to go until you're in the weeds of it, right? And so we want those teachers and coaches to tell us this coaching form is wonderful or this technique you're using is, is not really working. And so again, that pilot year is to really feel out how the intervention is being implemented. And then over the next few years after that are actually what we call our implementation years. And so our design is um, a randomized controlled trial where we have schools in, in those states who will be assigned to our intervention conditions. Those teachers will receive the coaching on how to implement active playful learning. And then we'll also have classrooms that are control rooms. So they will be conducting business as usual in the classroom, but about two years afterwards, we're going to allow those teachers to attend our training on active playful learning. If there is a benefit of active playful learning of this intervention, and we do have preliminary evidence that there is, it's really not appropriate to withhold that from a
1: classroom that was in this study. So exciting! That's That's super exciting. I love this meta approach in the onboarding that you're really, you know, showing them by doing, like how active playful learning can be used in a teacher. Learner kind of dynamic so that everyone's on equal footing, everyone kind of has buy into this paradigm and it can be really enjoyable for everyone who's participating. That's something that Caitlin and other folks uh, in the Temple Lab and I tried to do with the Bright Horizons work virtually, I might add, which was (laughs) (laughs) the journey. So that was that was definitely a challenge. But I love that you're able to do this in person. And one of the things that I, I found really striking in that work, and I wonder if you've had a similar experience, is that even for folks who are not really familiar with the playful learning research, who sort of have a more nebulous sense of why play is valuable to children still sort of had a lot of similarities in the kinds of outcomes that they wanted to be fostering. They wanted kids that they were working with, you know, to be independent, to feel confident, to be able to work together with their peers, to, you know, build some of those foundational skills that they were going to need later in their schooling and in life. And so I'm curious if, I mean, obviously I'm very bought into this model, but if you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, examples of specific kinds of lessons that you might talk about with those teachers to really distinguish between the control classrooms and the classrooms that are getting this intervention
2: yeah that's a great question yeah so this is really gonna we're gonna deep dive into the into the, what this intervention is so when I say a, a business' as usual classroom or a control classroom I don't want to make any assumptions obviously what's going to go on in those classrooms but what I what I will say is that the model of and again this is I don't know if I've said this this is kindergarten through fourth grade classrooms. We've moved in the past probably 50 years to a very didactic form of instruction in those grade levels. So it's not uncommon to see even first graders who were seven years old sitting in individual desks watching a teacher schoolification schoolification right i think we've you've you guys have definitely used that word on this podcast before so your listeners are probably familiar so what we kind of would expect those control classrooms to be would be maybe schoolified classrooms right and so what we want to compare that with are the intervention classrooms and so the five pillars of playful learning. The science behind the pillars is how children learn. And so children learn best when they're active, when they're engaged in the activity. So they're meaning their hands-on and minds-on in the activity. The activity should be meaningful to their lives. It should not be disconnected. If you're doing fractions, for a third grader, a fraction is the most What's the word? Like abstract. Abstract. Yeah. Even for an adult, like to, mm-hmm. to think about the concept of a fraction, right? So it can really help to connect pizza, right? That's <laughs> an example of pizza pie, right? So just making things more meaningful. It needs to be social. Mm-hmm. As humans, we're social creatures, and our learning really, really is very much benefited when we're in social contexts and when it's iterative. So when learning builds upon itself. And finally, when when it's joyful, right? I I think all children deserve a joyful childhood, I, I know, unfortunately. Not all children get that, but I think a very important pillar of learning. We know from the science, but really of childhood is joy. And so that's an essential part. And then finally, our, our six C's. These are skills that policymakers, people in, in the business industry, academics, all you know, sorts of industries have said that in, in the future, we're going into a world where AI may dominate. You know, I, I mean I certainly hope, but we, we don't really know what what kind yeah, of yeah, we is. don't really know what kind of future we're headed into. I mean, certainly with all this technology. I mean, the model of what children need to get out of education has changed certainly a lot since the industrial age. And so children need to learn to collaborate. We need to learn to be a team player, right? We need to learn to collaborate as a team. We need to learn to communicate with each other. We need to be creative thinkers and to be curious. We are facing a lot of challenges in this world, climate change, violence, equity issues, right? And they're probably going to require creative solutions and people who can think outside the box, so to speak. And we really need to foster that ability in, in school.
1: Yeah, like if you're if you're thinking about how the information age is sort of reshaping the landscape that we're operating in, education has to foster or facilitate the development of skills that differentiate us from machines. Like we're not just regurgitating information, it's not just by rote memory. Exactly. Like these are very hu- fundamental human skills. Exactly. And so speaking of
2: those regurgitation, right? A Content is one of the C's that we care about. Obviously, children need to have literacy skills and math skills and know science and know their social studies and know history, right? That's very important. Yeah. But I think we've moved to a model in education where content is king, so to speak. And kids are being taught to the test and they're being taught to perform a certain way at math level, at a, at a reading level. And yes, that is important. No one's saying it's not, but those other skills are equally important because all you've mastered is math and reading. You're not likely to be very successful out there in the future.
0: Totally. Yeah, I feel like we're definitely preparing kids for jobs that don't even exist yet. So having like a flexible set of skills is so important. And I think that this is so well-timed to all of your active, playful learning work because there's just so many policies right now that are bringing back play and playful learning pedagogy into the classroom. I feel like there's this huge movement. And so to have this, you know, riding on that movement, I think is so well-timed. Absolutely. I I think we're on a wave. I
2: think our... our, Yeah, we yeah, surfing our, it. Our colleague, Dr. Kathy Irish pasik says we've re- we're really on the we've caught a wave here, and everybody that we talk to when we go to conferences, when we give talks, when we collaborate with other like with school districts, people are so jazzed about this. I mean, they mm-hmm. are so excited. So we're really we're it's not just us, right? I mean, I think there are departments of education, there are countries around the world that are really interested in this model, and I think it's for good reason.
1: Uh, I want to take you back a little bit to some of your previous experiences that maybe brought you uh, further along this path. I know we've talked about baby's first years or BFY on this podcast before. Can you tell us about what your experience was like at Columbia doing this work? Yeah. So after graduate school, I took a postdoc
2: at Teachers College, Columbia University on the Baby's First Years Project. And it was an absolute honor to be a part of that team. When I was leaving graduate school and had to make my next steps, I knew that I wanted something very policy related. And so when this postdoc came out of Kim Noble's lab, I was thrilled. And so I I know a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with Baby's First Years, so I won't talk about you know the, the nitty gritty details, but it is a randomized controlled trial looking at poverty reduction. And I was put in charge of the piloting of the age four data, data collection wave. So gosh, probably five years ago, maybe six years ago now, mothers were recruited uh, in the hospital just a few hours to a few days after they gave birth. In, in the maternity ward can i just say that 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 is just astounding in itself like can
0: you imagine so because my, my sister just gave birth he just became an aunt a couple weeks ago yeah. and like <laughs> to a couple can you imagine a couple hours after hello please protect. i know that the way that you know they ask is like very chill and it's very integrated but i think it's just amazing like how those community partnerships with those hospitals that allow us to work with those new parents, I think it's just amazing.
2: It's amazing. I mean, I I, I can't even I, I can't can you imagine being the RA that would go yeah. and- <laughs> <laughs> I would just like a basket of flowers yeah. and cookies. <laughs>
0: I know. you're still on a lot of oh, medication. But...
2: <laughs> you might be in pain, but no, no, it's, so, it's so great. To no, but you now no, it was really. I mean, this is the. This was the design you need, though, right? I mean, you want to get in yeah, the first totally. hours of that child's life, exactly as, soon as It's astounding. Yeah, exactly. So, so they. I mean, it was the perfect. I think it's perfect. So, yeah, they would. They went in and they uh, told the mother. Uh, the the family, but I think primarily the mother was the participant of interest, that they had the opportunity to be part of the study. And then after they assigned the consent, they were randomly assigned to either receive $20 a month on a gift card. So it's a gift card that could be used anywhere, like a Visa gift card, or they were randomized to receive $333 a month on that card. They're free to use it however they want. No one tells them how to spend it. And that is the intervention, is just getting that money on your card. It's reloaded every month on the day of their child's birth. So if their child was born on February 15th, every 15th of the month, that deposit would go into their account. And so by the time I was getting there, the children were three. We were preparing for their first lab visit because of COVID. So they were at age one, the research team, which I, I was not a part of at that time, would go into the home. There's a thousand moms with their babies, and they would go into the home. And they did a mobile EEG, they would do parent-child interaction, they gave mom a survey. And so every around the birthday of, of these thousand kids, the researchers inquire with the mom about how it's going. And so COVID, unfortunately, cut the F Y off, maybe midway, a little probably a little bit past midway in the sample. It was, it was March, so it was probably almost three quarters of the way through. Grew. And then in your and when the babies were age two and three, all that could be collected was survey data and phone data. And so around the child's birthday, the you know, the researchers would call them up, give them a survey over the phone and that was how they collected data. So this was a big deal for BFY to bring those mothers and children really. I mean, they're they're toddlers. So We wanted to make sure to make a battery that would capture everything we were interested in. I think as developmental researchers, we're like, have the family there all day. Like, (laughs) we want to know everything. But um, that that's not feasible or fair. So we uh, did our best to capture what we thought was most important, but that was practical and that was fair to a four-year-old and their mother. And so um, I won't go into like exactly what, what we measured, but it was a very detailed battery. And it was an honor to, to be a part of this. I was able to meet incredible colleagues, both at uh, Columbia, but also around the country. I was able to fly to each of the sites and be there for a week and train everyone from RAs that were there to even my family fellow postdocs on the team. So it was just an incredible experience.
1: And a huge impact too. Like you've been you know, building relationships in each of these communities and really learning about like the lived experiences of the people that are there that are able to benefit from this work.
2: Yeah, it's it's been really eye-opening. I started doing research at Temple in Philadelphia and it's so interesting to conduct research in Philadelphia and then go do it in New Orleans and then go do it in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> as much data as possible. Yeah. Yeah, And then New York City. And these are such... different places. It's funny, there are lots of similarities that, you know, the institutional review board and IRB at a university controls, you know, ethically what can happen. And so in a lot of senses, like it's almost the same, Every like you sometimes wouldn't even know where you were if you were just in that lab setting. And you were just asking the same questions and conducting the same batteries, you really wouldn't know where you were. But then as soon as you step out of that lab, and you have conversations with the RAs, you have know, conversations with the grad students and postdocs. And when you start to actually talk to the research participants about more than like vocabulary and more than executive function you know, assessments, you realize that certainly my research has dealt with um, a lot of families living in poverty and poverty really looks different in these different cities that we visited. And that was something that I, I guess I, I'm not sure if I didn't expect it, but it was really eye-opening to see the difference. To see it, I think like New York City, for example, is a city that has a lot of resources for especially women and children living in poverty, and they really, I think, have a lot of like model examples of like social support. Whereas there were other cities we visited that poverty looked different, and I think that everybody's experience is unique, obviously. But some t- some of these situations. Some of these cities just didn't have the resources for that. And so I think that was really eye-opening in, in, in traveling and to, to see what, to, how different cities and different states like support their, their citizens. And that's a huge meta level, right? But you can even see that while training a research team like that and while piloting with families. It's really an amazing experience.
1: I'm curious of the moms or other family members that you were in touch with through the BFY project. Are there any conversations or or maybe comments that they made about their experience with the work that has really stuck with you? Yeah, it's interesting. You don't think about that until you like leave, right? I think my I had a colleague who
2: was a who's a research assistant. We would fly back, and we wouldn't really understand the we 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 like would debrief at the airport, right? We would be like, okay, like wow, that was different than Omaha, right? Or that was really different. And you don't realize the impact you're having until maybe you even fly back and you realize you compare and contrast your experiences, and you don't. I don't think you realize perhaps the impact you've made or I mean, that you hope you've made, right? Until you a few weeks in and like have the ability to process. But it's I'm so, I'm so privileged and lucky to be in that position and I've had incredible mentors who have allowed me to travel like that and to conduct research, you know, all over and it's very exciting.
0: Yeah, you're not just like a researcher, you're also a community organizer, you're a social change leader, right? You're a citizen of the the country and also globally, understanding how these systems work in all different little ecosystems.
1: I think that's a really important thing to keep front of mind for researchers and for policymakers, that these folks can very easily turn into data points or participants or constituents. And it really strips away just the basic humanity that we're talking about here. This is a parent and their child trying to make ends meet and every little bit helps. And I think that's true sort of in both spheres that we're really trying to marry when we're doing this kind of work or when we're having these conversations on this podcast. So it's, it's helpful, I think, to hear just through the lived experiences of people that are, that are participating in this work or that weigh in on the decisions that we make, that this is impactful. This is really meaningful. Mm-hmm.
2: No, hundred percent. I mean, I think when you do child development research, you you often see get a lens into humanity. I know when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of work in head Start schools, and i, I you know I grew up very privileged, and so i I didn't see a lot of poverty growing up and so a lot of my experiences in Head Start, obviously, I, I love children, and to interact with some of these families and some of these children who are living, you know, at the poverty line or below, you see humanity, right? I mean, you really realize that this is not just a study about vocabulary, or this is not just a study where we're tracking, you know, what impact money might have on brain development. I mean, at the end of the day, you're working with really vulnerable populations, and you feel, you feel a lot <laughs> of things, you're like... It, it can be very emotional but it really brings you back to why you're doing it you know like you people who are in this field I think they care about people they care about children and they want to as cliche as it sounds they really want to make the world a better place they want people to be happy and they want um, children to yeah, have every advantage amazing. possible and so this work is beautiful in that way
0: yeah you're reminding me why I chose this field in the first place <laughs> yeah it's exactly that I think that um you know, a lot of maybe like parents who haven't done research before, kind of the public can think of, can hear research and think like, oh, like data and privacy. And, you know, I think just with what's going on in pop culture with like, you know, these big tech companies and issues with data and privacy, people get kind of like itchy about it or kind of nervous about it. And I think to really, I think the way you said it is so beautiful and it's exactly why I do this work too. It's because it's about humans. And the ethics of how we do it and why we do it too. I mean, you're just telling us that for the APL study that, you know, after the experiment is over, you're also doing the training with the control group, which I think is another common question. Like people hear like, oh, the control group, that's like the group that, you know, doesn't get the benefit. But like the ethics of research is that actually everyone is benefiting from it. And so, you know, we, we share that knowledge in every way that we can, um, in ways that's it's going to help.
2: Yeah, it's certainly tough. I mean, it's certainly tough to be part of like a study, for example, like BFY, where a control mom is only getting $20. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we remind ourselves, we remind, we remind everybody that um, this is for the, the greater good, right? And, and the results of this study, we hope in the long term are going to benefit all everyone, right? And, and all the moms to come in this country. And so that's the long term goal when we do research with when we have control groups. But The good thing is with education interventions, often, certainly I think in in medical research, you know, you can treat people, you know, in the medical setting, you can treat them later, you can, you can kind of delay so that you can see the effect. And then of course, give them what, you know, they might need for their health. And, and I think when we go into recruit districts and we talk to like principals and we talk to superintendents, they definitely get a little bit upset. They're like, mm, what am I supposed to do with my um, schools that are control schools? And of course, we say, okay, well, in two years, like this is what we're going to offer you. But it's still a little bit upsetting. Like they they want those benefits for their students today. They have no time to waste with with COVID, quote unquote, learning loss. With what we have going on right now, they don't want to wait. They don't want any student to have to wait, and we don't want any student to have to wait either. But again, I think we we're, we're, we do research. We're in this field, and we have to understand that it's really for long-term. It's really, it's, it's the long, you're playing the long game when you do research. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. Let's talk about some of the policies affecting teachers. I think, We've had a couple of teachers and folks who work in a school setting on the podcast before, but it's helpful to hear from different perspectives uh, from folks who are sort of interfacing with this sphere, what you've learned from your work in schools and working on the intersection between research practice and policy and sort of thinking long-term about the changes that we're trying to help facilitate.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I started working with teachers in 2015 and I'll say a lot has changed since then, but also not a lot has changed since then. So certainly we've gone through a pandemic. And so every teacher, yeah, that's a lot. Um, A lot of teachers, (laughs) just, just a tiny world pandemic, it's not a big deal. So certainly the shift to online learning. I mean, what teacher, what elementary school teacher would have ever thought in their training that they would have to sit on a computer for six hours a day and teach kindergartners online. Yeah. I, I can't even fathom. <laughs> I can't even fathom what what a kindergarten, what was going through the mind of a kid. I just the stress level I can't imagine. So you, you have that, that that shift. And then of course coming back to the classroom. We also have the issue of unfortunately safety in the classroom, right? I think teachers and students alike, we have an, an issue with guns, and so safety. And then another thing is there are, in many states, bans of what can be taught in the classroom. So I think that teachers value knowledge and they, and they want their kids to learn everything they possibly can, right? And when what they're allowed to teach is restricted, I think we have a problem. And so due to these reasons and probably others, they are feeling devalued and they're not getting the respect they deserve. Certainly other countries respect and pay their teachers far higher than we do. In fact, there's a new study that just came out, I think this week or maybe last week, showing that teachers certainly feel underpaid and they're doing a lot more work than they're actually paid for. And so I think teachers are very unhappy. And we can see that in the statistics at the rate at which they're leaving the profession. And I think it's a combination of these environmental factors. And now the other thing with the pandemic is this learning loss. So so children are, you know, quote unquote, behind in uh, on a lot of scores of like math and reading. And so these teachers are being forced to catch these kids up due to this pandemic learning loss. And you know, that what goes hand in hand with that is this culture of standardized testing. So going back to early 2000s, with no child left behind, teachers were told and are still being told to teach to the test. And that was that's the policy for them. And so they went into most teachers, I can imagine went into teaching because they are passionate about children's development into productive, happy adults, right? And they want them to learn as much as they can. And I don't think they went into teaching to just drill and kill as we call it right? I don't think they were like I Definitely not. Yeah, yeah I just I want to go in that class <laughs> I want to be a robot
0: I want to have no intellectual agency over using my degree to understand and my relations with these kids to understand what is best I just want to be told exactly what to spit out like it's like back to the AI conversation right it's like at that point like if teachers aren't allowed to like really
2: showcase their skills in the classroom then how is it different from a robot Exactly. And so I think that what our active playful learning study, what we aim to do is bring joy back into the classroom, not just for students, but for teachers, right? We want to give agency to the children and their learning, but we want to give agency back to the teacher. I think, you know, when I talk to my parents and when I talk to people who went to school, you know, probably in the 60s and 70s, those teachers had a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. They would take those their students on these in- incredibly exciting, like, field trips. They would have these really cool units where they would learn about I, they just had so much more freedom in the units and what what they got to experience was just so different than what mm-hmm. then probably the what the three of us even got and certainly what the kids of today are getting but yeah. so I, I see this going in two different directions one currently to combat this learning loss and to get standardized test scores up. I mean, they weren't even that mm-hmm. quite frankly great to begin with. Often, <laughs> if you're going to compare the United States to other countries, but there's this new focus now on intense tutoring in different states. And so children who are behind on those scores, will they have to sit through six hours of mm-hmm. often didactic instruction, and then they have to go into another classroom and sit for tutoring. And so this is certainly if we're talking about younger children, this is developmentally completely inappropriate It It reminds me, yeah, it reminds me of a paper that uh, our lab did
0: with Ji Young, who's this incredibly brilliant researcher who is from South Korea. Um, And she was telling us about these schools that they have where kids are in school literally all day. And then as soon as the school day is over, they have these intensive tutoring programs for the next three, four, five hours into the night, and then repeat day after day and on Saturdays. So the amount of time they're actually spending in tutoring has created a cascade of other kind of like cultural and societal problems um, for families in Korea and so we just published a paper about that and i'm as you're talking i'm like that reminds me of somewhere another context i've heard and that has created you know certain issues you know she's working hard to bring playful learning into you know korea as well
1: yeah there's a certain like mental health and like psychological cost to schoolification you may be making gains in terms of these sort of hard and fast measurable skills but it's to the detriment of all of those other kinds of foundational skills and also to sort of quality of life for for families for kids for teachers
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I think there's a glimmer of hope, though, I will say. I mean, certainly, you know, studies like ours, we, we, there's a lot of individuals out there and teams uh, who are pushing for playful learning. And the new superintendent at the Dallas School District said, you know, they, they were doing their big summer training. And she got up there and she said, we're doing things differently this year. We are not teaching to the test. She She's quoted as saying, teaching students should be joyful and engaging to students and teachers should be able to use both the science and the art of teaching. And I think that, last part, the art of teaching is, first of all, beautiful, but second of all, that's what I'm talking about. I remember in third grade, I had a teacher who had this incredible unit, and this is an example of an active playful learning lesson, or just an example of what a teacher could do, where it was it meant to be a social studies lesson, and we were meant to learn about our town, and we were meant to explore our town. We would go out on an actual walk around the town. We learn about the history, but we would also, you know, she can incorporate literacy into that, right? We were reading a fictional novel, but it related to what we're talking about in our town. You can involve science. We would go to the creek. We could learn things at the creek related to science. You could certainly incorporate math into that. So it's this approach that can integrate certainly a lot of subjects, but also it was joyful and it was meaningful to us. That was our town. We grew up there. We were growing up there and it wasn't us sitting in... A desk all day just going through flashcards and so that's an example i think of the art of teaching that teacher i had mrs white created that unit created that plan and would do that with her students every year and that i think is the art
1: of teaching that we need to bring back and these are the teachers that stick with us for years after we have you know moved on from their classroom like you remember her by name you remember details of this lesson that she yeah. did with you and your classmates. it was one of the best, best memories of elementary
2: school. And I think the kids today deserve that because that's what elementary school is about.
0: And Molly, I can't let you leave the podcast without just picking your brain for a second about Bluey, um, (laughs) because I know I know, personally, you know, being friends, how much you love the show. And I think, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with Bluey, and I know you just published a piece about it in the conversation. What is Bluey and why is it? Why are you so passionate about the
2: show? Oh, well, we can, <laughs> maybe we should just have another episode. Just about Bluey. <laughs> um, Bluey, yeah. So Bluey is an incredible show out of Australia that I started watching a little over a year ago. I, I can't remember what what made me start watching. I think it was starting to become popular in the United States. Probably around that time. And I remember watching the first few episodes and thinking, "This is a game changer." This show portrays learning through play like I've never seen. It's first of all, the writing is hilarious. It's for children, obviously. I think it's aimed probably at the preschool age child, but their parents will sit there and be as equally entertained. But I think, you know, from a developmental perspective, it really does show how parents can organically foster positive development. It shows the healthy expression of emotions. It shows everyday life scenarios and how children will often play through that. Play is really important when working through emotions for children. So one episode has, for example, like their younger sibling is in the NICU. And that could be a really scary experience for a family and certainly for a toddler or preschooler who's going to the hospital to visit their sibling. When When they see an animal dying, I mean, I think children all get their first experience with death. And so it helps show parents and children what healthy expression and working through those emotions looks like and oftentimes through play and so they do it with such wit and such tenderness and you're you're gonna you cry i mean at least i cry (laughs) i'm not gonna everybody else but i i listened to i actually listened to another podcast about bluey it's specifically there's podcasts about the show so i know i'm not the only one crying but you're gonna cry you're gonna cry you're gonna laugh and my co-authors on that piece in the conversation feel the same. And so the three of us were like, we got to write something because it's just so in line with developmental science. It's it's crazy.
0: It's a phenomenon. That is such a fun, a fun show. And I've seen it here and there, but now I really feel like I need to do a deep dive. I'm inspired.
2: You're gonna have to binge it. You're gonna binge it Binge it from episode one to they just released Disney Plus, just released a new batch of like maybe five or six mm-hmm. episodes. And like we're in the United States, we're always like a year behind Australia, which I apparently for them they're like, haha, because the, you know, the shows in the United States would be released like a lot <laughs> later funny. there. So they're like, yeah, now you see how it feels yeah. <laughs> like when you're talking about your, your shows that come on a year before we get to see it. So, but it's worth the wait.
1: Well, I've got to ask. I mean, your work has spanned lots of different areas of study. You've done language and vocabulary development. You've done work with, um, you know, at-risk communities. You've done uh, this sort of playful learning work. And there's, I think, for folks who are deeply steeped in this tea, a, a pretty strong thread that connects all of those things together and at least for playful learning and these kinds of really healthy developmental dynamic, There's more sort of threads into popular media as well. But I'm curious, for any of those areas of study, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've encountered from people? This is a great question. I think if
2: I go back to my work on language, I didn't really know this until I got to grad school and I started working with Kathy hirsch Pasic on language. And obviously I was interested in vocab and play. And she said, well, you're gonna need to steep yourself in the science of language learning. She's like, yeah, you can work with vocabulary and play. She's like, but you need to go back to the like classic studies of how children actually acquire language. So around that time, I started to read a little bit about bilingualism and when children don't just acquire one language from their parents, but two or three or even more. And so I think that certainly in many communities, being bilingual is not valued. Certainly if you're an immigrant in the United States and you come in and English isn't your first language and you're learning English, that is often undervalued. And I think there are families out there who think that it's really just learn English, right? Or just learn one language. But the brain seems to really benefit a lot from learning more than one language. And so if you look at some like recent meta analysis, we see some perhaps task dependent benefits to executive function skills. So and we know, I'm sure you've talked a lot about executive function on podcasts, a really important life skill, foundational skill to have that builds on all of anything you'll learn in life, really. And so there do appear to be some benefits on executive function when you know two languages. So I I would want people to know that knowing two languages is good for the brain. So encourage, encourage that, encourage I encourage that
0: it's like that cognitive flexibility, right? Being able to like flex and code switch between languages, it also translates to other areas of life.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the second one is that school is not just about that sea of content. I think it's it has turned into that, right? With the standardized testing. I want people to know that when they're sending their children to school, your children should be getting an experience out of it that is more than just math, reading, social studies and history. They should be learning how to communicate with their peers. They should be learning how to collaborate. They should be learning how to become creative. I mean, I think children are naturally creative. I think that the current education system just stifles it. It beats it out of them, yeah. Exactly. So I think that school is made for bringing it out of them instead of taking it down. And then finally, if we go really early in development, Kathy wrote a book, funnily enough, called uh, Einstein Never Used Flashcards. Frankly, there's not many of us that are destined to be like Einstein, right? Really. But I think there's a point there in that you don't need to be using flashcards with kids to learn some early really, really skills, right? I think people often buy expensive educational gadgets and toys to try to get their kids like into Harvard to make sure that they have a chance of getting into Harvard at the time they're like one and a half. I think that what science has, the of science has showed us over the last few decades is that what's really most important is fostering early relationships and talking to your infant, having these contingent conversations with your toddler, right? Where you talk your toddler talks and you respond back. These are brain building activities. This is the foundation of what a happy, healthy child and adult will be is when you foster those early relationships. And when it it comes to toys, obviously material is important. You you want a very cognitively stimulating environment. Importantly, though, you do not need to have a playroom full of really expensive, colorful, loud toys, simple, everyday materials, accessible, cardboard boxes even. I'm laughing because I... I I can so confirm that because I
0: did a study in grad school where we saw kids just play with objects in their homes and it was like half everyday objects. Like they don't know the difference between the toy and and Tupperware. They will spend 40 minutes playing with Tupperware and they will learn spatial skills through playing with those. Like
2: you don't need the baskets of toys. Exactly. So I think that's like a misconception is you don't need, I don't even know if they sell Baby Aniston anymore, but if they do, you don't need it.
0: (laughs) And it strikes me that all of these misconceptions that you've debunked for us, like they all have this underlying conceptual model, which you brought up earlier, which was this active piece, right? Like kids are not buckets to be filled. They are not blank slates. They are active and they're agentic. And when we have kids who can have agency, we have teachers who can have agency, then it clears up a lot of these myths about how they learn because
2: through active relationships is how they learn. I think that's the key. I think that in our in our lab we're starting to potentially see that a child having agency in their learning and in their experience through life might turn out to be one of the most crucial elements. So I think we're starting to see that crop up in lots of different areas like you said. Yeah.
0: And same with like with even with the the moms that we work out huge shout out to all of the the moms who we ask you know right after birth. God
2: bless the moms. Yes,
0: God <laughs> bless them for sure. God bless
2: those moms.
0: Yeah, and I I think exactly this movement towards co-constructing the studies with the community, co-constructing what are the important outcomes for you and your community? What are the important skills that the teachers, you know, know are important for their kids that they work with? All exciting directions. So as a, a last question, what are you most excited about? In terms of latest directions
2: and the future of both your work in the field generally, yeah, uh, I'm excited about a lot of things. I think that this started of the conversation was with this three part equation I told you about, and you know we started it about probably about ten years, almost ten years ago in our work, and it's turning out to be the particular part that's crucial is this community piece and talking to community members and seeing what they value in what kind of adult they want their children to turn into, and so that working, especially working with communities, and now bringing bring it into the school working with these parents has been such a game changer. I think all of our developmental science frankly should really move forward with with this model. I'm also really excited by organizations like Three by 4th Kaboom, Too Small to Fail. These are organizations that are using the the developmental science and the research and having a real impact. So using like the science of how kids learn language for example and bringing those opportunities into the community. These are organizations that often will get, you know, money from philanthropic institutions and, and through grants and stuff. And so they're using the science and they're using the money they're given to help children. And then finally, kind of going back to academia a little bit. So that's what I'm excited about in terms of translatable research. But if we bring it back to the university setting, I think some of my colleagues who are you know younger professors just starting out in their career are really starting to take seriously issues related to DEI. And I think that lots of universities have like touted that in the past, but I have colleagues who are j- underway and building their own labs, right? Who are actually practicing what we've been preaching for the past 10 years in terms of, and, and more making our field more equitable. And so like who they're hiring, more appropriate practices for like the reimbursement process of being a graduate student is like, you don't get paid a lot, but you have to shell out a lot of money to like network and go to conferences. And so I have colleagues who are Really conducting fair practices, and they're helping first-generation college and grad students navigate the process of academia. If you don't have um, family members who went to college or grad school, how are you supposed to know how to navigate that process? There's not a handle. It's a really
1: inaccessible system.
2: It's a really inaccessible system, and so I have a lot of colleagues who, from all different backgrounds, who are helping the next generation like navigate the system to make it better.
1: Molly, this has been such a fabulous conversation. Thank you so so much for chatting with us.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been, you guys, an incredible time as always.
1: Thanks,
0: Molly. It's easy to get bogged down in today's divisive political climate. And in a reactive mindset that puts us on the offensive, it's really easy to forget the reason for the research and the political recommendations we make. And even the reasons we decide to make this podcast, basically, our why.
1: Yeah. And for us, along with everyone who's joined us at the table over the past almost two years already. I can't believe it's been two years. Oh, wow. wow, It's zoomed by. Uh, Yeah. All of this time, that why has really been a constant for us. And it's been about people. And amid heated discussions on the Hill about funding the government, all while we see threats to cut key programs that support children and families, that why has really never been more important. And talking to Molly has really been
0: recentering for me and reconnecting with my own why, especially because of how, you know, articulately she talked about her own and how she really reminded us what was important.
1: Agree. Yeah. And Somewhat comfortingly, I think for me, as both a researcher and as an analyst, it's been a reminder that we have a lot more control over the system than sometimes we may Mm -hmm. think that we do, that we're active participants in this system, and that by shedding light on how that system works and what we do have control over, we can empower any number of different audiences who might be joining us at this table, right? Policymakers, voters, families, to advocate for themselves and for their communities, and that includes really bearing the secrets of science, debunking those myths, and taking us all back to the basics. Which reminds me, Caitlin, you have a couple of fantastic new key insights pieces out in Brookings. You want to talk about them?
0: So kind of you, thank you, Haley. Yes, and thank you for nudging me <laughs> to talk about them.
1: <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I need that. <laughs>
0: I love that We're each other's biggest fans. Um, So yeah, I'm so excited to share this work. Over the last couple of months, I've had the opportunity to do some consulting work with the Brookings Institution, who has long been a partner of Temple University and as well as the Playful Learning Landscapes Action Network. And I've been working with their Center for Universal Education, as well as their Metro Center for Transformative Placemaking to release some research and policy pieces on playful learning, my very favorite topic. (laughs) <laughs> um so these two pieces came out in September one is a review of playful learning landscapes across the U.S. and internationally and this is a piece that I wrote with the brilliant Brenna Hostinger Doss at Pace University and there's really two main findings here so I you know all listeners of this podcast know how much we love playful learning and have heard kind of about um, the work that I'm doing but um,
1: learning is up there these... with paid leave <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes exactly those are just the two things i could talk about forever and ever yeah. Um, so yeah for this this piece we looked at these playful and learning landscapes that um, you know researchers put all over the country so there are about 12 that we included in this particular study and there's two really key findings The first finding is that playful learning um, installations, both small and large, are really effective at shaping child and caregiver language and outcomes and making those really rich interactions that we know drive learning. So the second key finding is that community voice is so important. And Mm -hmm. this is something that we talked about with Dylan. We talked about this with Rex. You know, so many of our guests have really helped us to really understand the importance of community voice. And this is just another kind of piece of evidence suggesting its importance. So in terms of policy recommendations, and obviously, you know, Haley, chime in with your policy expertise here, uh, if you have anything to add, but it really, uh, working on this piece, led me to two recommendations. The first is, you know, policymakers really need to make strategic decisions about different types of ways to infuse play and play-based learning into their cities, into their policies. So, you know, we looked at some really big kind of studies that were done. So in one study, there was a a life-size board game that was installed, um, which is super fun, super interactive. In another study, we worked with the Philadelphia Free Library to install, um, you know, a lot of fun activities like a climbing wall in their in their library. So you know these large installations, you know, we know are really effective for a number of reasons. But what's really interesting and surprising is that even the tiny, tiny nudges in the environment are also really effective. So if you slap a sign in a grocery store that, you know, you've really crafted to thoughtfully enhance children's interactions with their parents in a playful learning kind of way, that also has an effect. And it's really cost effective. It's it could be even short term. Um, but if you have enough of these low-cost kind of interventions, it can make a huge impact.
1: This is partly why I think this is such a good platform for taking us back to the basics because these are things that can happen really at a local level and in as you say very small sort of subtle ways like any anything like just you know prompting a parent who's maybe wheeling their kid through the grocery store to ask them about the different colors that they see yeah. in the produce aisle or how many different uh, shapes they see is this box bigger or is this box bigger you know that kind of language that helps kids really notice things in their environment that does it in a really playful way that enriches the interactions that kids and their parents are are having together are incredibly fruitful and just such a small lift for the people who are yeah. living in that space who occupy that space
0: Yeah, so perfectly put, it is a really small lift. And it's like you said, it's embedded in what you're already doing. You're already going to the grocery store. You're already folding your laundry. It's, you know, not that much of an addition to say, how many socks can you find? Can you match the socks? What color are those socks? So, you know, simple, but very effective, which is always really exciting to see. Mm -hmm. And then the second kind of big recommendation from this piece is the importance of community voice. So um, we looked at a number of different studies and across the board, the ones that were most effective Surprise, had the most community input in, in the process. And this could be at any stage in the process. Some of these projects had community members who helped to conceptualize them. Some of them, they actually were trained to be data collectors um, in the study itself, which was uh, really exciting. So, any kind of community opportunities to engage just enrich in the process for everyone. And obviously, for the community who then, you know, homes this, this project longer term
1: yeah, so it, it really helps engender a sense of ownership over that yes. physical environment or that installation and a kind of civic engagement too, that you know I, as a caregiver or as a small business owner or as someone who like lives in this neighborhood, I have a say over what happens here and uh, the kinds of spaces that we create to you know foster the learning and development and early experiences of kids who live in this community with me.
0: Exactly. And just by way of example, there's some really great work going on in Santa Ana where um, you know, there was a Mexican American community, Spanish speaking community that helped design some installations and they wanted to use grams and not pounds in their, you know, in a, a playful learning installation that they helped to design. Something as simple as that, language that's familiar, it's comfortable, that sends a, a bigger message of like, you know, this belongs to you. This is part of your community. And you belong here. Yes, yes, exactly which I love, especially for communities that, you know, historically have been marginalized. Yeah. And then the second piece that um, I'd love to talk about is it's about play streets. So this is a piece I had so much fun writing. I got to write it with Molly, who we just talked to. Which is Um, a
1: treat already.
2: Say
0: less. Yeah. (laughs) I know. So working on this with Molly has been such a joy. I also got to work on this with Sarah Lytle from the Playful Learning Landscapes Action Network and Kathy Hirsch pasic from Temple, of course. And this is a, um, you know, the brainchild of so many people who worked on this project, you know, even before I started at Temple, too. So Rachel Todaro, uh, Doug Piper, Emily Mann, um, and of course, my colleagues at Fab Youth Philly, uh, Rebecca Fabiano and the Play Captains. You know, they're, they're really the ones leading this. And I was honored to get to amplify the work that they are doing in this space by writing this piece. So we wrote about Play Streets. Play streets are city streets that are temporarily closed down for the summer, and they're transformed into playful hubs for kids. Play streets is an amazing program that was conceptualized many years ago. It exists not just in Philadelphia, but in many cities around the U.S. and internationally. And this idea behind it is that during the summer, children spend a lot of time outside of school, So one of the best ways to keep up students learning is through kind of these, what we call informal learning opportunities, like playing in your neighborhood. And they're facilitated by play captains. Uh, So these are local Philadelphians in the case of the, you know, the piece I was writing about. They're often teenagers. This is their first job experience for many of them, where they get trained in what are the principles of playful learning? And how do I actually go out into a street and, um, you know, take, take kids play to the next level, right? So they're not just playing hopscotch or tag, they're playing playful learning tag, which is like, think about playing tag as a kid, but every time you tag a new person, you have to call out the sum of all the tagged kids, right? So every kid has a, a number and you, it becomes a, a fun math
1: game. Good um, mental jump. Also, also, my first yeah. job was bussing tables. I would have loved to <laughs> have been <laughs> a play <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no playful learning and bussing tables. No, good. And just... I had the pleasure of going to um, the play captains training that Rebecca led a couple years ago. And it was just so fun and joyful to be in that room and, you know, just getting to, you know, work with the undergraduate students who are collecting data, um, getting to work with a community organization. And then, you know, on the kind of with Brookings getting to zoom out and think about what's the impact of this work and what's the bigger, bigger picture here. So, that's the the fun takeaway from my Brookings work this month.
1: This is really, really fantastic work. Congratulations! I'm Thank so you. so excited that this is out there. I feel like um, you know one of the things that we often come back to on this podcast is thinking about. Some of those action items, like what are some of the main things that you would want mm-hmm. you know different kinds of audiences to to take away from this, and I feel like you've so beautifully summed up the key insights in this work, but if we're talking about the basics of research in real life, what would you say are some of the main themes that stick with you for parents, teachers, the odd person in the community who maybe doesn't have kids or doesn't have direct interaction with kids? What are some of the things that you would want those folks to know?
0: Oh I love that question, so when I first think about people who do have, you know, interactions with kids on a regular basis, I think a lot about informal learning. So, you know, the school is not the only place to learn. It's not like, uh, I think some people think of like, you know, school is like the workplace for kids. And then when they come home, it's about you just want to relax. And play is often seen as a break from learning or a break from work. But play and learning we've talked about this many times before, they're overlapping. That's how kids learn. Play is the work of childhood, right? So um, that's one of my favorite quotes. I think really understanding that everything can be made into an opportunity for kids to learn and to understand something new um, is super important. And then I would say from someone who does interact with kids, I think, Um, pay attention to the policies that your local leaders support, right? Are they supporting playful learning cities? Are they supporting families? Because um, having healthy families and healthy, healthy cities is really important for everyone's well-being. I think making that connection between, just because I don't directly interact with kids, I'm still participating in a society in which, you know, kids are the next generation of leaders and how can I contribute meaningfully in a positive way? Mm-hmm. They are
1: our doctors and our innovators, our inventors—the yeah. people who are going to set the course for for everything that comes next. So, um, yeah, that's really beautiful. I love this.
0: I think Gino liked it too.
1: <laughs> I know, I'm sorry for reminding that. She's very excited about. Like, yeah, she's <laughs> giving me snaps
0: with her
2: her
1: singing voice. I'm- Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing this fantastic work. Unfortunately, that is all we have for you this time, Curious listeners. I know there's so much more to unpack here, but check back next month for more great content from the table. And in the meantime, give us a like if you liked this episode, subscribe and follow if you loved it, and we'll see you next month.